On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Three minutes past 11 this Sunday morning. It's August the 27th and it's Gavin Riley with you for the next two hours here on On the Record on News Talk 087 1400 106. As ever, the WhatsApp number, if you want to get in touch through those means, the text number still there as well, 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. If you're on X, our hashtag is on the record NT. And you can also email us as well on the record at newstalk.com uh, is how you can get in touch. Um, Long time listeners will know that ordinarily this is the time where I'd give you the digest of, of what's making the front pages before we sort of dive in. But to be honest, the front pages this morning are almost all universally about the same story, which of course is the aftermath of the awful, awful um, events of Clonmel on Friday night in which four young people lost their lives. That understandably dominates the front pages of the papers today and no matter where you look you see the portraits of Luke McSweeney who was 24 his younger sister Grace aged 18 and her friends Zoe Coffey and Nicole Murphy both of whom also aged 18 Um, the Sunday Independent this morning principals at two schools affected by the quadruple role tragedy in Clamel this weekend have said that Leaving Cert students who died hours after getting their results will be remembered as model students Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times tells us that a sudden downpour is believed to have caused the horror crash that claimed the lives of the four young people after the road surfaces became dangerously slippy. Uh, Luke McSweeney, it tells us, was driving the three teenagers to a party. Gardi were last night examining the scene of the accident and what remained of the vehicle. Investigators suspect that the driver lost control after the weight of the car caused it to slide on an already dangerous road with an incline. There is no evidence to suggest that he did anything wrong or that he was speeding. A security source told the Sunday Times last night there is probably... A combination of factors which led to the accident, a combination of poor surface conditions, the weight of the vehicle and a steep incline, all probably responsible. Even light rain can increase the risk of a car crash, especially if conditions had been previously dry, uh, said that source. Gardy were last night continuing to appeal for anyone with information to come forward. Post-mortem examinations will be held tomorrow at University Hospital Waterford. Local reps have said that it will take years for Clamell to recover. Uh, and the front page of the Mail on Sunday, again, the portraits of the four young people who so desperately, sadly, lost their lives. Three young people who were thrilled with their results, um, says the, Sunday, the Mail on Sunday, were just moments from joining their friends on a bus to take them to a party when the car that they were travelling in crashed into a wall in bad weather and overturned, killing them instantly. Details of the tragic final moments of Nicole Murphy, of Zoe Coffey, Grace McSweeney and her brother Luke McSweeney, who was giving his sister and her friends a lift to the bus, all emerged yesterday. They died at the scene, uh, which, as the Mail on Sunday again says, occurred on a steep and narrow road uh, near their home on the outskirts of Clomel just after 7 o'clock on Friday. Uh, I am joined in the studio to go through uh, what is in the papers by Valerie Cox and by Declan Power, but we can't go any further without just spending a moment to reflect on that. And I suppose the comfort that a lot of people might draw um, from the fact that if it was just a case of the the weather conditions, Valerie, becoming so adverse so quickly that there wasn't any sense of driver error, nobody was acting in any way recklessly, this is just no, a desperate, it, desperate accident. It was just a desperate accident, I think. And I mean, obviously there's investigations going on, but it seems to be from anybody who was there that the weather was appalling and it was a bad stretch of road where there've been other accidents before and the driver probably didn't stand a chance and then there was a wall in the way at the wrong place mm. and they were just unfortunate I mean, it, it's it's one of these things. The awfulness of it is, I think, that all of these people were on the cusp of their young lives. Mm. And that's the third incident we've had like that this summer. Um, we've had the two boys from St. Michael's in Greece. Mm-hmm. They died on their holidays on the island of, I think it was the Eos. Mm-hmm. And then we had the two girls dying on the way to their Debs. And all of these people, they have a connection 
in that all their leaving search results came out on Friday. And I was just reading there in The Independent that the family of um, Andrew O'Donnell, he was one of the boys um, who died out in Greece. His family sent best wishes to all his classmates from St. Michael's as they got their results. And, you know, all of these young people, four, five, six, seven, eight of them now, they're all linked in this, that the results came out. And I think that's what makes it so unbearably sad mm. that they were just at the cost of their lives getting their results and about to start on the next chapter. I can't imagine it. No, actually, I hadn't seen that line about the about um, Andrew's family sharing their best wishes. And I actually can't imagine how selfless that is because when it's a reminder of, of what your son should have been looking forward to uh, and what lay ahead of him for the rest of his life, you, you could understand if they just decided to, to close ranks. But to be so selfless as to send good wishes to everyone else is, is remarkable. Uh, before we go on, Declan, a word? Yeah, I think, it, it, as uh, Valerie was saying, it's not just the families of uh, those who have died in Tranmel, all the, the families of those more recent fatalities. The wound is ripped open again, yeah. and uh, it, it's, it's a greater pool of grief. But I suppose what it reminds us, too, is that... You know, with regards to road traffic management and whatever else, where we have these bursts of heavy rain, it's something we're not used to in Ireland. Uh, I had only ever experienced uh, rain like that before in uh, abroad in, in places like Africa. And if you experience aquaplaning, if you've, uh, I'm sure some of the listeners out there uh, may have done, mm. it is quite a frightening thing. It's a little bit like being on ice, only I would say worse. And you have no control of the car for that period. Yeah. And if you haven't experienced it, no matter how good a driver you are, you, uh, you, you're, you're bereft of any ability to control. And in, in situations like this, we may find that uh, we may have to rethink how we navigate on those kinds of roads. And I have family from uh, you know, uh, down that uh, neck of the woods and the roads around there, people would be intimately familiar with them on a day-to-day basis. Mm. But sometimes that familiarity is what can be your undoing when you come across a, a very different weather system all of a sudden, a heavy rain or mm. maybe snow. That w- could be another source of, of accidents. So we need to maybe rethink uh, in extreme weather events how we drive and how we communicate that in terms of how we form and train drivers as well. Yeah, uh, it is uh, simply, there's nothing else to say other than it is an awful tragedy and after the, the thoughts of the whole country are with the community in Clonmel and particularly the families, uh, the three families involved in all of this. Um, elsewhere, uh, away from the events in Clonmel, there are a few other uh, significant stories which otherwise have, would have made the front pages uh, of their papers. The Mail on Sunday has an interesting story about how a prison governor has been accused of stealing supplies and equipment from a private side business or for a private side business. Uh, the allegations are contained in a series of protected disclosures by an Irish prison service whistleblower. They've been referred to Gardaí for investigation. There's more than 50 individuals of governor rank within the prison service. Uh, the whistleblower has also accused the prison superiors of covering up and facilitating this alleged fraud for years. Uh, the protected disclosures were made to Simon Harris while he was the interim justice minister earlier this year. The whistleblower also accused the secretary general in the Department of Justice of trying to block a guard investigation into the theft allegations. That's an extensive spread that's inside the Mail on Sunday. Uh, the sidebar of the front page of the Sunday Times tells us that the relationship between Daniel Kinahan and his father has turned sour uh, after rows over Christy Kinahan Sr.'s decision uh, to have more children in his 60s and his backing for conspiracy theories. Uh, John Mooney tells us that Daniel is said to have grabbed control of the transnational criminal gang built up by his father. Kinahan Sr.'s volatile personality has also become erratic and more aggressive, uh, sources say, according to John Mooney. Uh, In turn, Daniel Kinahan has angered his father 
by ordering violence against Irish rivals, which has ultimately led Gardaí and the Irish government to lobby the US to impose sanctions on them. Uh, Kinahan Sr., according to one source, blames his eldest son for ruining his attempts to rebrand himself as Chris Vincent, a businessman who operates across the Middle East, Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, when he moved from Spain to the UAE in late 2016, Kinahan reinvented himself as a financier who was ready to invest in anything from art and restaurants to aircraft technology. But the plan fell apart when Daniel Kinahan began ordering gunmen to kill his adversaries on the streets of Dublin. Kinahan Sr. is said to have viewed this as, uh, as with disdain and with some level of embarrassment because of his lack of sophistication, education and social skills, uh, sources say. Uh, that's what's on the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, the Sunday Independent tells us that Leo Varadkar has strongly defended the government's new proposed hate speech laws and he has accused Elon Musk, uh, who has last week threatened legal action to stop the legislation of showboating. Um, Elon Musk, who, as we all know, is the owner of X, formerly Twitter, um, he said in a post on X last week that X was going to file legal action to try and stop hate speech laws. Uh, he didn't mention Ireland by name, but he was saying it in response uh, to an article from the conservative news website Grips which is talking about the introduction of the uh, anti-hate speech laws uh, here in Ireland. Musk, who describes himself as a free speech absolutist, said that X would be filing legal action to stop this. Can't wait for discovery to start, he said. Leo Varadkar, in his response, uh, speaking to Jody Corcoran and Neve Horan in the Sun Independent, points out um, that the law isn't even the law yet. It's going through the Oireachtas, so it can't be challenged while it's still only going through the process. He's, he can challenge something in the courts, prospectively after it's been introduced, but Leo Varadkar says... I suspect he doesn't know what he means and is just showboating. Uh, that's according to the Taoiseach. Uh, and finally, for now, the Business Post front page. Um, all looking forward to the budget. Only 44 days away, uh, tax fans. Set your calculators. Um, tax breaks for small landlords and a backstop for developers who cannot sell new build apartments uh, are set to form part of a budget day package to try and tackle the housing crisis. Dan O'Brien tells the Business Post he's working on a backstop which would involve the state backstop. There's that word again. God, we just thought, we thought we'd gotten away from backstops, but here we are uh, borrowing baseball terminology yet again. Dara Bryan is working on a backstop, uh, which would involve the state buying any apartments that developers can't sell on the open market and then using them for cost rental housing. Uh, this forms part of a number of budget measures proposed to address housing supply as the government recognises that it must use the upcoming budget to make a mark on the housing crisis. Um, this isn't what we'd intended to talk about, but people building apartments and not being able to sell them. Yeah, I like, found that very strange. What? And why would the government be turning around and wanting the apartments that nobody else will buy? Does it mean that they're overpriced and the government is willing to use public money to buy these overpriced apartments? It's a very strange well, thing. Well, if the government is the only buyer, I suspect they might be able to haggle down the price. But I suspect that there's a sign of greater dysfunction earlier in the pipeline if you have a situation where somebody has built a new apartment development, if some private fund, which of course is exempted from the higher stamp duty if they want to try and buy up apartments en masse, if, if even they're not willing to take them on and then you have apartments left that have already been granted planning permission that have the funding that no one is prepared to actually buy on the open market at the end of Declan, that just seems like it's like, okay, yes, the government buying accommodation, if it's there, fine, yes, but it's a symptom of massive dysfunction further on the line. Absolutely. It? It, it's, again, one hand doesn't seem to know what the other hand is doing. And at a time when the government seems to be wanting to reach out to the smaller uh, landlord, the, the, the national, the home produced landlords, uh, at a time where they're not feeling the love, you know, yeah. it does seem to, it's like a lot of things that have been perennials in this country and housing and health seems to be, seem to be two of the long term perennials. It's, it's not solved simply. It's, it's an endemic thing. It's a, a systemic, uh, problem and throwing money at it is, uh, only yeah. scratching the surface. 
Um, if if there's something that I'm missing, by the way, if any listener ha- has some ideas to, to how we would have gotten to a situation where apartments have been built and have been financed and are there and they then find themselves unable to be sold and they're supposed to be up for sale. Let me know. Just it, it, educate me as to what's gone wrong there. Or what am I missing? 87 106 is, is the number on WhatsApp if you do want to get in touch. Because ge- genuinely, I'm a bit flummoxed as to how you'd get that far down the pipeline without there being a buyer uh, somewhere along the line. Um, there is extensive coverage, um, as has been the case for the last few Sundays, of the perceived prime, crime problems within Dublin. Now, it should be noted, by the way, that the official statistics uh, do suggest that actually assaults or violent crime within Dublin city centre is actually lower uh, than it has been in the past. But nonetheless, there seems to be um, the broader perception uh, that Dublin is unsafe. And as many people in, in charge have said, the perception of Dublin being unsafe is itself an issue in its own right. Um, and there is a piece on page five of the Business Post about how the Guardian's new city policing plan must be more than just a sticking plaster. Um, Declan, when, when we say that you're a security analyst, usually we sort of view that with the lens of international affairs. But mm-hmm. there's a few issues about whether people feel secure on their own streets, which Gardaí have to grapple with. Oh, absolutely. And uh, over the years, I've, I've given a, a, a lot of focus to this. Um, a new uh, retired assistant commissioner, Pat Leahy, um, who used to be responsible for policing in uh, the north of the inner city and mm. then the whole of Dublin city. And Pat, amongst others, uh, was responsible for bringing in something called the Small Areas Policing Initiative. It was based on studies he did for uh, himself for his PhD. And it was... Very simple. It, it was about empowering Gardaí that would be ordinary patrol Gardaí that would step up, that would be selected for this role to be sort of become the block sheriff. So their job was to know everything that went on within a very small region or area or part of the city and get to know everybody in there mm. and deal with things that would not always be policing matters. So if uh, old Mrs Murphy down the road uh, was giving out that the city council weren't removing the rubbish from the cul-de-sac at the end of the road, uh, they could get, get on to Garda Murphy. And he or she would make the calls. Do, so they would. So they would a nice bond idea, in. but you sort of wonder whether it's supposed to be the job of the guardie to be a kind of a public switchboard for the rest of the public services. Well, it, the point of that is that the Garda would have such a strong, solid relationship and know everything that was going on from the ground up, and this would be coupled with additional information that a Garda at that level would not normally get: intelligence-related information on figures in that in their little sector that might be involved in terrorism or organised crime or, or mm. anything of that nature. So that if something happened within that area and you needed a specialist units to go in to commence an investigation, they would be doing so through the offices of these Gardaí that had the links and the relationships built up. So you were much more likely to have a, a good flow of information top down, bottom up, and uh, less toes being trampled on and crimes being solved. But more importantly, a proactive approach to things. Now, to come back to a point you made, it's funny, I was scribbling down something just before you were saying it too. The whole thing here is it doesn't matter whether Assistant Commissioner Willis says the streets are safe. Mm. There is a perception out there, and I would argue a justified perception. The streets might be safe according to statistics, but people do not feel safe in the city centre or haven't been feeling safe, I would argue, since the easing of the pandemic uh, strictures and it's it, the the perception out there uh, amongst most people traders uh, ordinary people you know who socialize and work in dublin mm. 
particularly in the city centre, is that there was a collection of, for want of a better term, feral youth who literally took over sections of the city at certain times of the day or evening and that they were not being dealt with. Now, what does that mean? It means that there was a lack of police presence. Now, part of that may be perception. Part of that, uh, there's always a a degree of uh, truth within any perception well, I issue. that it is a kind of a perception thing because if they're not necessarily doing anything wrong okay they might be a little bit more boisterous than people are comfortable with and mm-hmm. people might feel a little bit intimidated by being in their company but one would think if there was any demonstrable evidence of anyone doing anything mm-hmm. illegal you could call the guards and the guards would show up and say here lads what are you doing well, the problem so too is... it's more about perception than truth. Well, the guards, if you listen to what the GRA and the AGSI have been saying, is the, gu- the guards are diminished in resources uh, in terms of manpower uh, and in terms of even their own... If anybody was paying attention to some of the media reports this week uh, where Garda recently uh, retired, recently discharged Garda, I should say, because uh, they didn't have le- enough length of service to have retired, we're talking about the degree of... Uh, of lack of capacity with regards to their telecommunications, with regards to the pulse system, uh, with regards to the systems of policing whereby a, a greater obsession of logging and uh, material and ticking boxes rather than maintaining the relationship with the public mm. by having a policing presence on the street. So this week it, it was to be welcomed that there was going to be an upgrade of presence. Now, the media focused a bit about the fact of the the specialist units, the armed units or whatever else. Basically, you were going to have a much greater presence on the street. Uh, But it shouldn't be binary because some of the critics about that say uh, you you don't want just a heavy hand. You need a long-term approach. And I fully agree with that. Mm. And indeed, uh, Leahy's approach as well was, was based on that too, that if you have a regular presence and relationship building, then you're equipped to be able to respond uh, robustly uh, in the face of crime or in the face of, of people who are uh, acting with impunity. But you also have a, a long-term relationship that allows communities to try and steer people away from acting in a feral way. And it could probably be argued that the the lack of resources and the lack of mm. presence and the, uh, the pandemic did lead to pockets of, uh, of youth who did appear to be uh, just acting in an intimidating way. And it shouldn't be the case. I mean, restaurateurs, traders shouldn't have to be ringing, ringing the guards to say, come down, there's, you know, when this is an ongoing thing. Mm. Um, aside from that piece by Colin Thomas about um, the, the city policing plan um, on page five of the Business Post, Valley, there's also a comment piece uh, by Jim O'Callaghan, uh, Fianna Falls, just a spokesman. Dublin needs yeah. a responsible, accountable, elected leader with real clout. Um, Methinks that the uh, current TD for Dublin Bay South might be eyeing up a new mayor- <laughs> mayoral position should one be created. This is quite possible, but I think he's absolutely right. And he says no politician elected to the Oireachtas or serving in government has direct daily responsibility for the successful operation and management of Dublin. And he's absolutely right. You know, it doesn't sit, the mayoral, the mayor of Dublin at the moment, I mean, it's mainly just a courtesy title. Mm. They turn up, they snap ribbons, they pat people on the head. You know, they do all that kind of thing. And that is really, and maybe get involved in a row about the Christmas crib. But we need to go a lot <laughs> further than that. And there needs to be a serious mayor there who mm. can tackle these things, who has the resources. And while we're talking about the resources, you know, the importance of having the Gardaí visible on the streets is so important. I mean, you mentioned there, you know, if there's wrongdoing, okay, you call mm. the Gardaí. Yeah. But it takes them a while to get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're being mugged, that's, they're going to be, well, the perpetrators true. are going to mm-hmm. be gone. Also, I think we have a bigger problem in our attitude to the Gardaí 
because you've seen so many times over the last few months, particularly where there is a major crime committed or something, the Garda is involved and the investigation immediately is, you know, what did the Garda do in this situation? Did they handle it properly? Yeah. Um, what about their driving and so on? I mm. mean, there's been various incidents like that. And if Garda don't feel that they are being supported, protected, yes, of course, if they do wrong, that's got to be mm. investigated. But I think if they don't feel that, they, that the commissioner is behind them, mm. that they're going to back them in trying to bring back, to eliminate lawlessness from the city, that there's going to be a sense of apathy among the Gardaí themselves. And I think it's very important that we take that away and say, yes, do your job, you're trusted. Mm. Yeah, uh, That is on page five of the Business Post. Uh, I need to get to an ad break, but just before I do, actually, there's one piece that isn't in today's papers, but I think was in yesterday's Irish Independent. And definitely it's worth just sending you out on this because you've actually mentioned this, that there was a report... Uh, by Robin Schiller. It's still available on independent.ie. About a man named Mahmoud Bazi, uh, who admitted on Lebanese television that he was responsible for killing two um, Irish privates who were serving on a UN mission all the way back in 1980, Thomas Barrett and Derek Smallhorn. Um, and that he was ultimately, eventually, just as caught up with them, mm-hmm. uh, and he was incarcerated and he was convicted in 2020 of murdering those Irish soldiers 40 years hence. And that he's out already. And that yeah. there's something to be learned from this. Yes. Yeah. Mahmoud Bazzi uh, murdered Private uh, Derek Smallhorn and Thomas Barrett and attempted to murder uh, Private uh, John O'Mahony, not in the course of, of, of action or battle. It was in the aftermath of the Battle of Aturi where uh, the Christian militia, of which Bazzi was a part of, had attacked Irish positions uh, that were there to protect civilians in the uh, village of Aturi. And uh, the Irish, the Fijians, and uh, backed up by the Dutch, uh, fought a pitched battle for a week and it led to, uh, amongst others, the deaths of a Fijian peacekeeper and an Irish peacekeeper named Private Stephen Griffin. And it was after this that these three men were abducted uh, disarmed. In fact, I'm not sure were they even uh, properly armed in the first place. They were driving uh, an unarmed uh, party of military observers into a Christian militia controlled area. Okay. And they were shot in cold blood. They were separated from the main party, taken away uh, and to be to be executed. Now, mm. it took, as you say, 40 odd years. It was... Um, yeah, cause he, he admitted doing it on TV not long afterwards, but then yeah. he fled to the US and it took quite a while to get him back to face justice. He was selling ice cream in Detroit and eventually, uh, I think uh, was RTE did a documentary on him, but it had been known within veteran circles uh, that he was supposed to be over in the States. Now, he initially claimed he was acting on orders from his commanders, but in the TV interview, he admitted that he he singled out these men and organised or perpetrated their murders because of uh, revenge, which is a strong thing in that part of South Lebanon. Uh, vendettas and, and blood um, blood deaths being honoured. Now, the, the point here that I would make is the Lebanese state have been extremely indelicate uh, in releasing a man. Now, I know he's 76 and he's apparently not in good health, uh, but he served less than, it's less than three years since he was convicted. And he's, out and, and he's out already. And it took long enough mm. to bloody well get him in front uh, of a judge and to, to have him face justice. Is so there, how does is this there a lesson auger? there? Because we're obviously still looking down the barrel of a potential prosecution for the death of Sean Rooney and the grave injury of, Sean, of Shane Carney. Precisely, so precisely. Uh, and I think it's a lesson for us uh, as a society and for those who run our state and uh, those who consider themselves friends of our state to keep pressure on the Lebanese to bring the uh, those who are charged with the murder of uh, of Private Rooney 
before the courts, before justice, mm. and that it not be just left flitter away. Because the problem with Lebanon at the moment is there's a state within a state, there's a Hezbollah-run state that's really, well, allegedly pulling the strings of the democratically mandated Lebanese government. Now, this I, I would argue this is a test of uh, of their capacity to operate as a, as a proper entity. And the international community should be used, should be brought to bear to, to put pressure on them. Because what we've seen with Bazi's release is that there is an argument to be made that do they really take this seriously? For all the fine talk that um, Le- the Lebanese state has made about the Irish contribution to peace in their country, do they really take the blood sacrifices that we have made seriously? Mm. Uh, very fair point and certainly something that's worth heeding. A few texts coming in about the crime issue. Uh, it seems the authorities want as few pensionable and permanent workers on the front line and as many as possible representatives in the Dáil and Shannon. Uh, priorities need reviewing fast uh, and fast, says that person. Uh, one person about the prospect of a, a properly empowered Dublin mayor says, if we were to get a proper mayor who acted responsibly for the city, that would be fine. But we'd probably end up with is an influencer or some other such drama queen, says this texter looking to make a name for themselves. Uh, which is a point that Jim O'Callaghan does recognise in his piece in the Business Post. But also he says that's true of literally every elected position. There's no reason to think that Dublin will be any different or that we still couldn't elect uh, somebody decent who wants to do the job. Uh, and finally for now, this is a, a long text but a good one from Breda. Uh, I used to report crimes to the Gardaí but I never got a positive response so now I don't bother. In the past month I've witnessed menacing driving of scrambler bikes amongst families in the local park, open drug drilling uh, in the IFSC, undisguised robbery of a bike, gangs of youth intimidating people, drug addicts injecting into their groin in an open space. If the Commissioner added all of the crimes that your listener witnessed and didn't report, his stats would increase exponentially. The people of Dublin know the reality. And they've been let down for decades by the policies of the bosses in the Gardaí, the city councils and the politicians who Breda says don't care about Dublin. Let me know your thoughts. 087-1400-106. More from the paper. Talk this morning. Join the studio by Valerie Cox and uh, Declan Power to go through what is in today's papers. Uh, one text in, Gav, you're well placed to say a word or two about Bray Wyatt, a big Irish wrestling following here, and it's cut a lot of us real deep. Um, I'm actually, I'm glad somebody gave us a, a chance to mention that for 20 seconds because a lot of people are surprised when I mention, it, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram or even talk to people in person, that I'm a fan of professional wrestling. And there's, there's much more of us out there than I think a lot of people recognise. And people go, professional wrestling, like, are, are you, like, what's the point? Sure, it's all a stitch up. Sure, it's all fake fights and all pre-scripted. Sure, how could you like that? Professional wrestling is one of the purest forms of storytelling and drama that it is. And if it's done well, it's done really, really well. And I won't go on about it too long because it's not for everyone. And uh, there's very little that can be said about someone else who left us this week. But uh, Wyndham Rotunda, who was better known as Bray Wyatt, was one of the best storytellers. And in an industry where you've seen everything dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of times, uh, for a guy who was actually that young, he was only 36 years old when he died this week of medical complications. For a guy that young to be capable of such creativity, to be so captivating uh, and to be just such an extraordinary performer in the ring as well. Uh, he is a tremendous loss. And uh, anyone who's going to All In in Wembley this evening, I am uh, madly jealous. Uh, but you look at some of us have to stay home and mind the country uh, while the rest of you are going off to see MJF and Alan, uh, Adam Cole in Wembley. Um, anyway, right, 11.34 uh, and lots in the papers uh, still to get through, uh, including, uh, interestingly, Valerie Cox, and this is actually so- something that I've, I've had a bone about for a while, an interesting spread by John Drennan on pages 16 and 17 of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Um, There is nothing for us to do. That is the moan of one of our 75 grand a year senators. As voting records reveal, a third of members have failed to turn up for half of this year's Shannon votes. No one is defending Shannon members not showing up for votes because that's the job. But if people are wondering why the Shannon is perceived as doing so little, the claim of one senator, and there's a grain of truth to this, 
is that there's nothing for them to be doing. Well, it's true to a certain extent. I mean, they're getting 75,000 a year and it is very much a part-time job, I think. But um, John Drennan's done great work here in analysing what's going on. One in three senators didn't turn up for half of the votes in the Shannad uh, this year. Now, there's, there were 57 votes called in the Shannad between January and the end of June. And the level of absenteeism was extraordinary with 20 of the 60 members not bothering to vote in 50% of the ballots. Mm. Now, that shows mm. an extraordinary degree of disinterest. Yeah. Now, maybe there is nothing for them to do. So that would mean maybe we don't need them. Maybe we could save, yeah. save a lot of money. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying this to defend uh, absentees, because obviously if, if your job is to be a legislator, then then show up and vote on stuff. Mm. Uh, one thing which is worth noting is that unlike uh, the Dáil in his present stance, the government parties do have an overwhelming majority in the Shannon. So basically, a lot of them can, frankly, half-ass it, and there's never Absolutely. any danger of the government being beaten. So it never sort of feels like anything is on a knife edge. That's not a defence, no. but it's a bit of context as to why there no, might not be full I, attendance. I think, though, um, the Shannon has thrown up some excellent politicians, mm. and it's thrown up people that we've never actually heard of. But it's seen very much as a stepping stone to something else, either going to Europe as an MEP or becoming a TD. And there's a nice analysis there um, from John saying, who's looking to escape the Shannon's holding pen next? Mm. And he has a whole list of people who are senators at the moment, but who are eyeing up seats in the door in their own constituencies. And I think that's awfully true. Now, it's also a holding pen for people who lose the seats because mm. all they have to do is get a nomination to the Shannon instead. And I mean, if you even just look at the list of senators, lots of them have previously been TDs and now they're back in the Shannon, uh, recuperating, um, having a little rest before they run for election again. <laughs> there in lies like, the problem. That is the problem, isn't it? Because yes. it, like, it, it's, a, it's a full house of the Oireachtas in its own yeah. right. It's a legislature and it shouldn't mm-hmm. be seen as, as either the training ground or the retirement home. It should be a prize in its own right. I completely agree. And uh, I agree with much of what Valerie said as well, except the one point... Uh, I think we should be retaining the Senate because I like the fact that it is uh, an alternate chamber. It has, uh, where people have used it wisely, uh, they've brought issues to bear. I mean, David Norris is a, a very good case in point. He was a very much a, a voice in the wilderness. But having the place, having his seat in the Senate allowed him to articulate things that got traction in Irish society that probably wouldn't have. Uh, there are others similar to that as well. I see my old colleague Tom Clonan, mm. since he took his seat, he's used mm. a very strong... Uh, a very strong platform about disability disability and and, and other related issues. And this is what I think the Senate should be for, because when Valerie and I were chatting about this in the reading room earlier, we're both agreeing in in a way that there are issues that a TD can't focus on. And this is the problem, I think. If you you have people that look at it as a waiting room before they get their seat back for real politics or to go to Europe, or they're they're, they're hanging on there because they got voted out, they're not really focused on those things. Nothing grinds like a senator who says that they're a senator for... County Clare or yeah. Dublin Vingo. You're, you're yeah. not a senator for a geographical constituency, is the point. You're and you, supposed but, to look at national issues. Yeah, exactly. And so you're not bogged down with uh, the potholes and the other issues. And sometimes I think we end up with people who get uh, seats in the doll as TDs that should really be senators. They're single issue people and they're focused on various different things. And that, there's nothing wrong with being a single issue uh, exponent. But you're probably best, you should, you'd be better placed to do it in the Senate. Uh, you can't re, you know, if you have to be dealing with constituency issues and things like that, especially mm. if you're independent. I think if you're an independent, if you're, if you have that streak and you don't want to be bogged down by party politics, then the Senate is the place to be because you're unfettered and you have a much, um, 
clearer voice if you use it properly. But the last time this became an, this was an issue, do you, remember, you know, there was a, a referendum. Yeah, and uh, years ago. Yeah, you know, I was in yeah. favour of retaining them, but it was also what what swayed my thinking was the fact that there was supposed to be a programme of reform. Yeah. And that hasn't happened. And what we need to see is it need, there needs to be some adjustment so that the system works better. And there needs to be not just an adjustment, uh, we'll say, constitutionally or, 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 or legally or whatever else, but also with the idea of who we're nominating to the Senate and why we're nominating. It shouldn't be just a sinecure for people who have been loyal to particular parties. Yeah. And it, it's bloody hard work for any of those independents mm. who, who do get... Uh, elected, I know Tom had to go at it three times in a row, and he and he really he in the yeah, last I time he really went at it. He I, really you know, threw the kitchen some, sink at it. There's been some great people in the Senate. They really have, and you mentioned David Norris there and lots of others. But it's like there's three levels in Irish politics. First of all, you've got local government, the county councillors, mm. and that's all about potholes. Mm. Then you go to the Shannon, and that's all Plamos. And then you get to be a TD, you get into the doll, and that's all about politics. Mm. And I mean, that really seems to be the level they all operate on, except for a few that come through and make a difference. And yeah. they do. And I think a shake up of the sh- Shannon. But Leo Radker has promised this anyway. Well, there um, has to be some electoral reform on it soon, because there was the Supreme Court case that was taken by a UL graduate, Thomas, Thomas Hinehan, who was pointing out that, you know, it's been, what is it, 44 years since we had the referendum about expanding the franchise for the university panels and oh, it yeah. wasn't done. And yeah. the Supreme Court has ruled, actually, no, there is now a, a, an impetus, there is a, a mandate and instruction to do that yeah. and the government's been given a deadline to do yeah. it. So perhaps by next time we might actually have well, wider think, voting. Yeah, and also, even as they exist, the university panels are a disgrace because the same old, same old are holding on to those seats mm. most of the time. As you say, it's very difficult for cloning to get in there. Mm. No, they get re-elected because there's so little interest. There's so such a low level of voting. People don't care. They get the envelopes into their houses. I don't think they even read them half the time. Mm. And if we could bring in the other educational institutions as well, yeah, or in our universities yeah. mm, or yeah. technical colleges, whatever, they should all have a say in who goes it's to the channel. It, it, makes, it always struck me as the, the daftest thing. I think I, I'm a graduate of both DCU and uh, Trinity. Mm. And so you get a vote for one but not the other. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And like, you know, the, the DCU and UL graduates not have... I, I'm surprised. I suppose it's indicative of how a lot of people don't really think about the Senate, that it, uh, even university graduates. But I mean, in this day and age where we're saying that only university graduates should have a vote, I mean, that, that flies in the face of the ethos of a republic. But then so many things we do in this country can fly well, It's constitutionally that. prescribed. The people adopted it that way. Um, the left uh, tried to get rid of the Senate in the past. People chose otherwise. End of, says Lara in Dublin. Um, Dan says, the Senate is a good idea, but you shouldn't be allowed to sit in the Senate if you've just lost a doll seat, at least for a full doll yeah. cycle. The way around that, Dan, is just to have the elections on the same day. Because people wouldn't run for. for could I suggest something as well? As you were saying about that people had, you know, that's constitutionally uh, constructed a certain mm. way. I think everybody should be able to have a vote, but we, it's, it should be different to the way uh, we vote in general elections. In that it, there are panels that there are, that yeah. everybody, every citizen in the state should find that there is a panel that they can connect yes. into and be able to vote through that. Like I'm, I'm not. Terribly, uh, I don't have terribly detailed knowledge on it, but like you have an agricultural panel, you have a commercial panel, yeah. you have the university mm-hmm. panels, and so if we broaden that out a bit more, if we embarked on a, a, a program of public education to make people aware, and if we got people that wanted to be in the Senate for particular reasons, and if the political parties got on board with that as well, uh, there are a lot of people within the arts, within business, within uh, John Crown, another example, he yes, went in, yeah. did a stint yeah. in the Senate, in the Senate, did one term. 
Job done. Yeah, and he, and he yeah. had a few things he wanted to achieve. And I, I was hugely impressed with him with the way he and went about it. And the gift of the shock. That's ridiculous. Yes, yes He shouldn't yes. be able to give it out like sweeties no, exactly. to people who've yeah. helped him it's get not it a ball. Or whatever. I, I think ridiculous. the logic behind that is that... And that it, reduced its standing as well. That, yes. that it avoids the prospect of the, of the two houses being differently composed so that you don't have a government that has a majority in the doll being stymied in the Shannon. But yeah, I, I, I know, I know, I know. Um, 87 106 let us know your thoughts on that. I didn't expect to spend so much time on the Shannon. Uh, mm. So much time that we have to take a break. <laughs> More when we're back uh, with Valerie and Declan after. Um, I, I didn't, didn't want to ask Shane while he was on the line. Declan, Declan any interest in getting Brotox as advertised <laughs> in the Sunday Times today? No, no, no. I, I, I can't quite understand it because I think one of the differences between men and women is that uh, men, as we advanced, we always had the easier ride in a way, getting grey, uh, a few wrinkles, maybe even a bit of baldness, mm. all added to the Made gravitas. Very distinguished. Well, that's yeah. the general idea. Well, certainly, I, it, it kind of, if you were in a certain type of role, uh, you always having a baby face wasn't an advantage at all if you were a man. So yeah. I, can, I can understand it from the, the female perspective. But obviously, times have changed. And obviously, the newer generation of, uh, of men out there want to have the pulchritudinous visage that the ladies have as well. So uh, more looks <laughs> God, I hope they come out with that vocabulary as well. <laughs> 20% of men, apparently, in one clinic, 20% of their clients yeah. are men. Right. And I assume it's the uh, the face because I believe that people can get Botox in the posterior you, you region in, as well. In, like in other places too. Yeah. <laughs> you know other, more about this than this But apparently one of the best uh, clients are the fathers of the bride. They're all coming in for it. All right. And they're so great when they're, when they're walking down the aisle. To get their yeah. trout yeah. pants out of Such is the, 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 the stigma that might have been there previously removed that one, one therapist who's speaking to the Sunday Times today says that for the male patient, in five years' time, you will look at your friends and they'll have either had considered the treatment, had the treatment, or be having the treatment. It's a, it seems like a boom market to get in, Valerie, if you've got the money to invest in that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I think it's absolute rubbish. I don't mm-hmm. know why men are doing this. In fact, I don't know why women are doing it either. Yeah. I mean, I put yeah. them both on equal footing. I mean, it's vanity. Yeah. And yes, fine. I suppose if people want to do it, that's grand. Yeah. But I think letting yourself age gracefully yeah. is probably a better option. The frightening thing is that this is happening to quite young men. Mm-hmm. Some of them are only in their 30s. So you're signing up, Gavin? Uh, I, I'm, I'm a man in my 30s and I, I haven't uh, done it. But uh, never say never. I work in a very superficial industry and there's always a younger model coming up. You can have baby it, so. Botox, apparently, when you're still very young. Okay. Oh, is that what it's called? But yeah, yeah. Okay, baby right. Botox. Uh, I'm not right. so far, so far <laughs> researched. I, I think that I know nothing that, much. that, you know, reasonable diet, plenty of exercise uh, and a healthy approach to life. Anything uh, for people that have had surgery for serious things the idea of getting any kind of an intervention that's purely for cosmetic reasons mm. must seem anathema uh, you were uh, very exercised speaking of things that are allowed usually age gracefully usually people would think of wine aging gracefully uh, Valerie you were very exercised by some news that people I think was it in the business post I can't remember which one that's of the pages it I'm is today to remember. Um, um, but that is one, one of the um, newspapers carries details of France having a wine surplus and taking some pretty evasive measures to try and yeah. get, get through it again apparently it's all to do with Europe we're not drinking enough wine. And oh, we're not. Oh, gosh, we have to be good citizens. Yeah, we have to be good citizens. Yeah. Up now, but I would have thought that during the pandemic, people went mad drinking wine, you know? Yeah, wine yeah. and Botox, huh? Yeah, yeah. And you, could, exactly. <laughs> you could bring the wine home in bulk and nobody yeah. even know about yeah. it. But apparently not. People have not got back to it. And a lot of their wine sales, of course, would be through restaurants and people have not got back yet to going out for meals and so on. So they've got this absolute wine lake in Europe. But the French, um, particularly in the Languedoc region, which would produce a lot of their wine, Mm. um, they've taken this very seriously. And the government is now uh, paying them huge sums of money, millions, 
to dig up their vines. Now, I think this is a bit extreme. Dig up their vines. Get out of the business and plant olive trees instead. And Mm. when you hear of vines that take maybe decades and decades to come to anything, and, you know, the strain is so important and the soil Mm. and all that, I can't believe the French government is doing this. I think it's something like 57 million um, they're investing in digging up their vines. And I really do think that we should advise the French and tell them, you know, this is not a good idea. Ten years' time, you're going to be really sorry. There won't be a drop of wine. But I think this is the idea. It'll come back as a very much more expensive um, wine. Uh, Mail on Sunday uh, is the one that has this story. Uh, French Agriculture Minister Marc Fisneau says that the the fund they're putting together, the 200 million, is aimed at stopping prices collapsing so that winemakers can find sources of revenue again. So in in actual fact, there's too many of them in the business. Right. And they're, and they're, 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 driving down the, the the price and that we all need to do our bit by keeping the price of wine up. I'm just struck by it uh, as, as we're talking about that, that diminishment. It, it seems to parallel another issue that has been written about in uh, the papers today. I think actually it was the Sunday Independent, Liam um, Collins, yeah. a piece about the, the decline of the Irish pub. Or certainly, no, Liam's point is more the evolution or the changes that are coming in the Irish pub in terms of how we drink, the way we drink. And I mean, even just to the point that we're talking about wine, which would have been unusual mm. in Ireland uh, 20 plus years ago. Um, yeah, the, 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 you would wonder where uh, where it will all end. But I think in in Ireland, uh, perhaps we are recognising that mm. we need to mind the pub because it's not just about the consumption of alcohol, is it? It's about no. the consumption of community, yes. the engagement yeah, yeah. with community. Absolutely. Uh, and I think maybe the parallel there for the French is that their consumption of wine has always been about discourse and about society. So they're very careful about how they tinker with it because... In France, it's very egalitarian. From from the high to the low, however one decides that, they like their wine. So if you're turning it into a, a more expensive elite thing, I think you might have a bit of a backlash. And nobody does backlash better than the French. Let that be the final word uh, from Declan Power, defence and security expert, and from Valerie Cox, journalist and other. Thank you both for joining us. We're going to be talking about apprenticeships and whether there might be a solution for many people who could be disappointed by the CAO that's coming up after the news. Don't go away. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Transformation always disrupts, but it doesn't always need to be disruptive. On News Talk.